Who the Wild Things Are with Ryan McGuire. You gotta listen to your body. Oh my God, maybe, you know, I could get out there. I could do this. Let's take a ride. Find your wild side. Real stories. See with your own eyes. It's so beautiful. I'm gonna have the best time out here. Yeah, I was in tears. I was like, that's the best, man. Oh, sorry, I didn't see you there. Welcome back to Who the Wild Things Are. This is episode 16. The show that brings you folks that have turned their passions into priorities. And uh, we have an awesome example of that today. First, I'd just like to say, I feel like there's a lot of, like, dividedness. I don't know if that's the right word. Division in the world right now. And... This is just a friendly reminder that we're all here just to show love. Hopefully this can be, the show can be kind of a beacon of light for that. So this is your friendly reminder. Text your mom, text your friend you haven't seen in a while, your second grade teacher. Tell them you love them. Tell them you appreciate them. And yeah, that's all I got to say about that. So today we have an excellent example of turning your passion into a priority. If you are kind of like everyone else that's wondering what is going on with this digital nomad thing. These people that are traveling the world full time and staying connected digitally and just living life, sort of like the van life episode we had with Quinn two weeks ago. We have a very similar thing going on today with Mike Barr, he's a photographer, he's a rock climber, he's a martial arts enthusiast, but he's living and traveling the world from his motorcycle. So. I think he's got an excellent story to share with everyone, and uh, we're going to get him in here. I think uh, he might be somewhere crazy right now. Hey, buddy. What's going on? Dude, good to see you. Great to see you, man. Great great to really meet you, actually. <laughs> like, I know we right. spoke on the phone the other day, but this is good, face-to-face. Yeah, this is the real deal. Well, the real deal for a nomad, at least. Seriously. Now, I, 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 I'm going to have to apologize. I tried to find the quietest spot I could, which just so happened to be a public park. <laughs> right 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 off the main road out here so there's a little bit of background noise i apologize oh we'll, we'll stand by you man it's it's absolutely no worries i appreciate it dude as long as you keep that smile we'll be we'll be good to hang out all night i try i try so where are you at right now are you in california or yeah i'm sitting at a town park up in apple valley um i was just in joshua tree for like two weeks and uh yeah kind of started fleeing north uh this afternoon Nice. Were you doing some rock climbing in Joshua Tree or? Yeah. Yeah. Just getting in as much climbing as possible and really just kind of like enjoying the warm weather. That was the big one. Right. Because you're originally like from the East Coast. Is that right? Yeah. So I grew up in New York. Um, basically grew up like an hour outside of Manhattan. Uh, family moved. I was born in Florida. Family moved up there when I was like two. So lived there my whole life. And uh, yeah, lived there until I until I left on this trip back in September. Because I knew I was not going to do another Northeast winter. <laughs> yeah, I can't blame you there. That's a that's a tough spot to be in in the winter. Did you did you learn to climb up when you were in New York, or is climbing something that's happened like more recently? Yeah, so I started climbing. Um, I've always like been interested in rock climbing. I remember like even as a kid, I was a big like scrambler. Like um, lived in you know my family kind of lived in a wooded area, so there was just boulders strewn about all over and I was always kind of scrambling on them, but I didn't start climbing until I was in college. I, uh, 
I was an RA my sophomore year. And as, uh, as RAs, we were able to kind of pick and choose our classes before everybody else. And we had an intro to rock climbing class. And uh, I was one of like six people in the class. I kind of like squirreled my way in there and kind of just took off from there. That's awesome, man. And Joshua Tree is like such an epic place to climb. Oh, dude, it's, it's incredible out there. I've, it was my third time out there. Um, but it was my first time really spending any like measurable amount of time. It was always like, I think I spent two or three days out there on a road trip I took back in 2017 and then just kind of like passed through there on another, uh, on another road trip last year. So, yeah, yeah. I kind of, uh, I just got my full dose of it this year. I, I also, I'm pretty new to rock climbing and, uh, what I heard from kind of the guy drew who's like, my rock climbing teacher, I call him my trad dad. He, uh, he explained to me that back in the day, rock climbing, so now for people that don't know, it's graded on a number system. I think they call it the Yosemite system or something like that. Yep. And it goes up to five, from five, six, five, seven, five, eight, five, nine, and it goes up really high. But back in the mm -hmm. old days, when people were climbing in Joshua Tree in the beginning, it was a closed system. So it stopped at five, 10. So mm -hmm. a 5.8 in the old days, if it was written in the old days, is much harder than what a 5.8 would be today. So you have to be yep. careful when you're in Joshua Tree because a 5.8 might be really, really hard. Yep, yep. I, heard, I, I learned, that lesson the, uh, learned that lesson the hard way. That was, that was a, yeah, yeah. No, uh, and actually interesting little piece of like just climbing history. That system, it's called the Yosemite Decimal System. It started in Joshua Tree. Yeah. So like prior to that, you know, there was no real standardized system of grading climbs, but uh, John, it was John Long and John Backer and a couple of like the big, you know, climbing stars of the 70s and the 80s. They were like, all right, we kind of got to figure out a, a good way to grade this. And basically these guys, they would climb in Joshua Tree during the winters, but then their main stomping ground was up in Yosemite, like six hours north of here. So they called it the Yosemite Decimal System. Um, uh -oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. That's a, that's a good fun fact. I, it, so it probably could have been the, uh, the Joshua tree decimal system. Very close. Doesn't roll off the tongue as easily. <laughs> it's a lot, it's a lot of syllables. <laughs> it really is. So yeah. what is, what does a week look like for a, a motorcycle nomad? Like what, what was your last week? Like what's the, the order of operations every day you wake up? So the day, so the day to day stuff, it's very similar to like, I found that my day-to-day -day lifestyle is very similar to most like van lifers. Um, you know, get up in a place like Joshua tree where I was able to, cause I was staying on some BLM land just North of there. Um, you know, I'm able to kind of like establish a home base for a little bit. Like I'm able to like take some stuff off my bike. I'm allowed, I'm able to set up my tent. Um, you know, I can kind of have a place where I can leave my stuff and then go off and do things. So in Joshua Tree, it was really easy. I was, you know, in the desert, I was cowboy camping a lot. So I didn't even really have a tent set up. Um, I was just kind of so, like sleep. Real quick, what, yeah. for people that aren't familiar, explain cowboy camping versus like traditional camping. <laughs> so traditional camping is, you know, the traditional style of camping. You have a tent, you have a sleeping bag, you have all sorts of accoutrement to make your, to make your, uh, your night as comfortable as possible. Um, cowboy camping, it's the bare minimum, you know, it's, it's a tarp thrown down next to my bike, my sleeping pad and my, and my sleeping bag. Um, 
it's a much more low profile way of camping. And I've, you know, I didn't, it's actually, it's funny, like up until the last six weeks when I've been kind of hanging around the Southwest a little more and, you know, on level flat desert land, I haven't really done a lot of it. Like I've done more in the last two weeks than I have in the previous like six months. Um, but it's, it's good because it's much more low profile. It's easy to get packed up in the morning. You know, when I cowboy camp, I'm, I'm up and moving in 10 minutes, you know, five minutes really. Whereas like, you know, today I packed up my actual full camp that I've had set up for the past like four or five days. That took me an hour and a half just to kind of organize everything, get it, you know, get it put back on the bike. So yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's uh that's an interesting thing. And I, I was actually thinking about that was you think of like van lifers or <clears throat> people that are doing a nomadic lifestyle as kind of minimalist because they can't have that much. You have taken that, you know, 80 or 90 square feet that most people have down to like four square feet. Yeah. And I think is- it- I think I did the math. I think it's down to 130 liters of storage. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that's, that's got to be a big life change for you, you know, coming from living in a house to mm-hmm. that. Was there like a big selection process of what can I take and what can I not take? Absolutely. hundred percent. And it's, it's a process that I still, you know, even five months later, you know, to, what's today? Today's the ninth, right? I think today's the ninth. That's a good question. Yeah. I think today's regardless, like on the 10th, that's going to be five months on the road for me. And even five months in, I, I still have that conversation with myself all the time. I'm like, all right, what have I accrued that I can get rid of? <laughs> and it, it, you know, it's kind of a never ending process, but the good thing was even back in New York, like I have, I got really interested in minimalism about a year and a half ago, um, two a year and a half, two years ago. And I just realized like, once you learn to kind of let go of, you know, this, this is going to sound really messed up, but like let go of sentimentality to a certain extent, you let go of like this consumerist, attitude that I think that I think it's easy to fall into when you're in a house. Um, it really wasn't that bad, you know? Um, it's actually made my life a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. think it's a big relief when you take that step. I remember moving out of my apartment last time, I just made this giant box and I sent it to my friends. And I just said, mm-hmm. you guys go after it. I just sent them a huge mm-hmm. box. And I was like, I don't want it. I don't want to hear yep. about it. Your guys's and this is the stuff I'm going to have. And anything that's outside of right here, I don't own. And you know that. Yep. Absolutely. When I, when I was moving out of my apartment, so uh, right, basically the three years before I left New York, really the four years between when I graduated college and when I left on this trip, um, I was living with the same person, like just a friend of mine from high school. We were, we were roommates together back in New York and, you know, <laughs> the, the six months before I left was just this purge of selling the things like I could get a little bit of cash for, uh, and giving, giving away everything else. And I, it's the amount of shit that I gave him, uh, it was, it was substantial. It was substantial, but it was, but again, it was great. Cause it's like, especially on the bike, you, you're kind of limited to the, the things that only really add value to your life, you know? And yeah. And some, those things become like, those things become way more important. Like they yeah. have so much more value in your life. Yeah. And it was actually, it, it, it helped. It made saving for this trip a lot easier too. Um, you know, it was, it was part of the reason I stopped buying as much. Um, 
you know, a lot of people, I, I get asked this question all the time, like, how did, how did I save as much money as I did for this trip? Because, uh, you know, it was a long process. It, it, it took about three and, a, three and a half years from when I decided I was going to, you know, spend two or three years living off a motorcycle to pulling out of the driveway in New York. Um, and along that way, you know, along that journey, I had to really evaluate my spending habits. And when I did that, I realized I was just spending money on so much stuff I didn't need. Just like, you know, clothes and, uh, you know, going out with my buddies on the weekends and, you know, that stuff, you know, if you're a person, if you're a person who finds value in that, all the power to you. But I realized once I was able to kind of pare my spending down to, I think I, I think it, I got it down to five things, like outside of my living expenses. I was like, I remember the, I remember the day I decided, I was like, all right, from here on, I'm only spending money on my photography gear, uh, Rock climbing, jiu-jitsu, my motorcycle. Food. And food. Yeah, that was about it. And like living. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome when, you know, once you make that shift. So on the food thing, what's the, uh, what has been your go-to? Because obviously you don't have a, a kitchen to cook out of. What's <laughs> the, the food situation? I, I, I genuinely wish I could say... <laughs> I'm, I, I really wish I could say like, oh, you know, I, I, I make most of my food, uh, you know, and I, and, I, and I go to like, I actually go to grocery stores all the time, which is true, which is true. I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much in a grocery store every day, but I, I eat a silly amount of fast food. And it's an adjustment that I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to shift away from. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough in your position, right? Because oh, it takes like an inordinate amount of planning to be able yeah. to execute meals on a motorcycle yeah yeah i've eaten more taco bell in the last five months of my life than probably the last four years what's the go-to <laughs> order at taco bell uh i'm a value menu guy man <laughs> cheap cheap and easy cheap and filling calories per dollar <laughs> calories per, do per dollar per dollar um but no like so it you know when i can you know i have i have like a cook set with me i've got just like one of those little msr like screw on burners for the propane canisters and I actually carry like a cast iron skillet with me that I use when I can actually make a fire and like cook over a fire. Um, it, you know, one of the big like creature comforts that I miss from actually living in a house is having, I always say the biggest thing is having a bed with clean sheets. And then the thing right behind that is having a full kitchen. Cause like, I, I love to cook. I've been cooking for myself since I was like 13. So yeah, yeah, that, that was a, uh, that's one of those things that I miss. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I, I can totally relate to that. Um, mine was uh, shower and kitchen. Those or yeah, shower and kitchen bed. I don't really care. I can sleep yeah. in a duff bed full of leaves. And honestly, I get pretty good rest on the ground. Yeah, usually better than most like beds or couches, but not having a kitchen to cook in is definitely something that it, it takes a lot of adjusting. Now, if you have an outdoor kitchen, that's fine. You know, yeah, if you have absolutely. like a set up outdoors and you have a grate over a fire, that's perfect. It's amazing. But you would be surprised or most people would be surprised how hard it is to get that set up every time when you're living as a nomad. When you're living as a nomad and when breaking that cook set out, that's like, that's like to get all of that out and back into my cases in the way that it was, that's, that's, that's a 25 minute ordeal, you know? That's like, like the original just, Tetris. 
Yeah, just like just to get set up to cook all of those meals is like a pain. But, you know, it's it's an adjustment that I'm making because I, I, I realize I'm like, all right, you know, I've lost a lot of weight on this trip, which is awesome. But I feel like it's more just because I'm not eating as much because of how much of a pain in the, you know, pain in the butt it is to actually cook for myself. Yeah, so. I, I could understand that. And I think now it's uh, I think when you're on the road, maybe it's less like boredom eating because you're probably always busy doing something rather than Absolutely. sitting at home and just chowing down because you're just going. Yep. Absolutely. hundred um, percent. It was, a, and it's funny. I, over Christmas, I bought a new helmet because the old helmet that I had was, was the first helmet I ever bought. And it was, uh, it was on its way out. It was on its way out, needed a new one. And I went from like a full face fixed helmet to one of those modular ones that you can like, like fold the face up and uh yeah it's a lot easier to eat while on the bike at this point <laughs> i've had to like actually check my behaviors there but uh but yeah no you're absolutely right it's and I, it's actually funny like i never thought about it like that there's definitely way less boredom just boredom eating because i'm like yeah. always kind of moving right so run that back real quick so you were just saying like you got to be careful about not eating on the bike obviously because bikes and cars have inherently dangerous properties. You're on a piece of metal yeah. flying through the air at crazy speeds. What did your yeah. family think like danger wise when you're like, no, I'm gonna do this not in a van, not in a school bus, not in a truck, I'm gonna do it in a motorcycle. So I, I've been incredibly lucky that my entire family for the most part has been just all sorts of support, you know? My direct family, you know, my direct family, like my mom, dad, you know, I've got three brothers. Uh, so like the whole direct family has been amazing. They're just like, go live your life. You know, um, the motorcycle, like safety aspect of it. You know, my dad rides, my dad's a rider. So like he was, he was certainly gung ho about it. My mom's, my, my mom, uh, she, she kind of accepted those dangers from my dad years ago. So it was a little, a little easier. I see she's, I think she's actually watching right now hi mom. Um, hi mom hi I'll, I'll call you later but uh yeah they, they've all been they've all been very good you know my 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 grandparents uh you know they were a little more wishy-washy about it you know i i say my grandparents like most of my grandparents have passed at this point but like my great uncles and my my great aunts um they were all a little like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Like, I hate motorcycles. Um, but yeah, everyone's been pretty good about it. Uh, interesting, you know, interesting story on day one of my trip. Like, so I left September 10th, right? I say day one, it was really like day four, but days one through three, we're at a wedding up in the Adirondacks, like upstate New York. So d really like day one of the journey, like where I was just on the road, um, my dad, who was down in Oklahoma, got into a highway speeds motorcycle accident. Like day one, like I'd been on the road for four hours at that point. <laughs> you know, like I was riding through the Adirondacks. I was having a great day. And like I was staying with a friend up in the Adirondacks that night. I called him, you know, I was like, hey, day's been great. What's going on? He was like, things are good down here. I'm going for a ride. I'll talk to you later. Click. I have dinner with my friends. My mom calls me back. She's like, hey, he's fine. But he got into a pretty serious accident on the, accident on the highway. So, like, that was, uh, 
that was a, that was an interesting moment, especially so or, so early on. You know, it's one of those moments. Where I definitely had a moment where I was like, maybe not. <laughs> maybe this wasn't the best idea. But you know, it's with the safety thing. It's just it's a risk that you accept. It's a risk that you accept. Like I accept every time I get on that thing in the morning that I am 35 times more likely to get into an accident than someone in a car is. Um, is that a real stat? Yeah, that's it. I'm 99% sure that that's the accurate statistic, but you're like, thir- every time you get on, on a motorcycle versus getting in a car, it's something like 30 to 35 times more likely to die wherever you're like on whatever trip you're going on. Hmm. Um, and did his dad end up okay? Was, was he, he's, you know, he's, he's good. He's, uh, thank God it was, it was the best motorcycle accident he could have gotten into. Like the accident happened here. The exit for the highway was right here. And the hospital was right here. Like happened literally just down the street from the hospital. The woman who was behind him that saw the whole thing was a trauma nurse at the hospital he was going to. So it was lit best circumstances you could have asked for um he's he's okay now he like he broke his leg he broke his hand had road rash all over the place but he's he's doing good now he's doing good good mostly super superficial uh battle wounds that you can show people and basically basically miraculously didn't lose his teeth somehow like smashed his face into the pavement wearing a half helmet like really kind of got really kind of got lucky in the grand scheme of things so Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to hear he. uh, Glad to hear he made it through. Okay, I appreciate that. But yeah, just like going back to what I was saying, it was calculated risks. That's it. Um, So with your dad riding a lot and you kind of seeing it growing up, did he like pass on any mechanical skills to you so that like you had that advantage going into this? My dad is borderline illiterate when it comes to mechanics. (laughs) Borderline illiterate. No, so. All of the, I've gotten to the point where uh, I'm pretty handy just in general. Um, I've always been kind of fascinated. You know, when I was in college, I was fascinated with cars. Like I had my own Jeep that I did a lot of the work on. Um, And when I decided I was going to do this trip on a motorcycle, um, you know, first I bought the bike that I I was going to do the trip on. And then I spent the two years after that kind of learning how to rip it apart and put it back together, Mm. you know, to, to the point where like just yesterday, like I did a brake job on a dry lake bed in Joshua tree, just cause like I needed breaks. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of where the mechanical stuff came from just out of necessity. Right on. So real quick, what kind of bikes do you have? And, and when you tell us what, what was the reason for that choice? Was it particularly for this trip? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I haven't been right in the grand scheme of things. I haven't been riding long. You know, I've met a lot of people on the road who are like, you know, they've been riding dirt bikes since they were like three years old and just kind of like lifelong riders. It wasn't like that for me. Um, I bought my first bike in 2017 in October. Like I graduated in May. I started working in July and then October rolled around and I like, I had disposable income for the first time in my life. You know, so I, I found a great deal on a, it was a 2005 Honda Shadow. And it was just like, it was a cruiser. It was one of those like kind of Harley style bikes, but made by Honda. And I, I loved that bike. I miss that bike to this day. Um, but it was very apparent that for long distances, 
it just, it wasn't, wasn't going to work. So when I had started planning this trip, I was like, all right, we're going to have to make an upgrade. And I just kind of started looking around on, you know, different dealership websites. You know, I had two motorcycles to trade in. So I was like looking around to who was going to give me the best deal. And I found, I found my, uh, my house on wheels. It's a, it's a 2008 Suzuki V-Strom 1000. Um, it's a thousand CC engine, which is big enough to carry my large frame and all of my, all of my gear around. Um, yeah, uh, it was just kind of like perfect storm. They gave me a great trade in value for the two bikes that I had. Um, I think out the door cash, I paid like two grand for it. Um, and I went with this bike in particular because, you know, A, the price was right. B, I took it for a test drive and I was, it was just, it was a really comfortable ride. Um, and it was, it was the type of bike that I needed to do the kind of traveling that I wanted to. Um, don't get me wrong. There are people who have done, you know, round the world motorcycle trips on way less. Like I followed a guy, I followed a guy on YouTube for a while. He rode from Alaska all the way to Argentina on like a Honda Ruckus, which is like a 50 CC scooter, <laughs> you know? So it's doable, but there was a comfort aspect with this one. Um, I knew I was going to be carrying a lot of gear. I knew, I needed something that was going to be reliable. Um, and that's the great thing about the V-Stroms is they're kind of a sleeper of the bunch. You know, when you see, when you see a lot of long distance touring riders, they're, they're all kind of decked out on the gigantic triumph tigers, the, or the BMW, like, uh, R 1200s, like all of the, the classic, you know, touring bikes, you, you don't see V-Stroms for some reason out here. They're like big in Europe from what I've heard, but in the U S they're just kind of a sleeper of the bunch. Yeah, I always think like when I think big cargo cruiser, I don't, I'm a noob when it comes to motorcycles, but I always think of the BMWs with the big cargo kits on them. Yeah. Well, everyone's seen, you know, a lot of people have seen like long, the long way around, which is one of the big, like, uh, you know, it's kind of the piece of media that most of the general public knows. And if you've never heard of it, it's, uh, it's actually Ewan McGregor, um, the guy who plays Obi-Wan Kenobi. Okay. He's, he's like an avid lifelong motorcycle rider always you know he was one of those guys who was like you know puttering around on like uh motorbikes when he was like 10 years old and uh him and a buddy of his they've done three like super long distance well-documented travels so they did the long way around in like 2002 which was london to new york like across russia um they did the long way down which was london to south africa and then just, you know, just before COVID, they did the long way up, which was Argentina to Los Angeles. Um, the first two of those trips were all done on like gigantic BMW touring bikes. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, it's kind of the standard, but you know, I'm 26. I don't have BMW money. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have, Suzuki, <laughs> I have Suzuki money. <laughs> you got time for that. So exactly. if, if you were going to paint your trip in a similar, <clears throat> similar way as those, what is the point to point that you're imagining in your trip? Yeah, absolutely. So you're talking about like just kind of the, the general itinerary. That's right. Is that what I'm getting? Yeah. So when I originally was planning this and this is, you know, this is just something I found on the road. Your plans change a lot yeah. just day to day. Um, you know, I was planning on getting all the way up to Ridgecrest today, but uh, variety of circumstances prevented that happening. But when I was first planning this trip, the general idea was I was going to ride across the U S then I was going to go up to Alaska 
mm-hmm. all the way up to all the way up to Prudhoe Bay, like at the northern, you know, the northern tip of Alaska. It's it's like the, I, I'm almost certain it is the highest latitude city in the world. It's it's five it's 480 miles north of Fairbanks, mm. up the Dalton Highway. Um, which if you've ever seen Ice Road Truckers, it's that like 400 mile dirt road all the way to the edge of the Arctic Circle. Um, I was planning on riding all the way up there and then riding all the way down to Tierra del Fuego in Argentina, um, basically the full length of the Pan-American Highway. And from there, um, that's still kind of the general idea. Um, I'm just, at this point, I'm deciding whether or not I'm going to go to Alaska because um, I can't really get up there until June. And I'm just kind of in this weird timing limbo of like not wanting to wait around three months to just be able to go north. So I'm toying with the idea of just heading south to Argentina in the next like month or two and just kind of starting that leg of the journey. But once I get down to the tip of South America, I'm shipping the bike to Australia. Wow. Um, And then, yeah, the idea is to ship it to Brisbane and then ride around the Southern coast of Australia. Um, Basically like, like clockwise loop around the the continent. And then in, in Northwest Australia, there's a city called Darwin. And you can ferry from Darwin to Southeast Asia, which is what I'm planning on doing. And then basically just overlanding from Southeast Asia up to, up to Portugal. Awesome. And Southeast Asia has a really big like bike community as well. Like everywhere or everyone there, you know, accesses a lot of that land on bikes. They are the best riders in the world. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a hell of a trip, man. That's going to take you some time for sure. So no, no need Absolutely. to rush. No need to rush. No need to rush at all. Exactly. Um, financially speaking, I'm still like kind of budgeting, budgeting in a way where I'm like, all right, I'm pretty sure I could still make this work. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's sure. the, uh, that, that's the general idea the general itinerary. Is your goal to like become Instagram famous and make money while you're doing this? Like the, a lot of the other van lifers do. You, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's a good question because it's something that I think about a lot. Um, when I was planning this trip, when I was planning this trip, it was kind of tough because I always wanted to advertise it more and really kind of build up to it. But it was hard because I still had a full-time job back in New York that I had to like, you know, kind of dance around. I could, like you know, a soft breakup with a significant other. Exactly. Like I could, like I had to kind of keep it under wraps until I was ready to actually pull the trigger and make those moves. So I wasn't able to, I wasn't able to really build a following beforehand. Cause I feel like a lot of people start advertising and building up their following beforehand. And then they go for me, I wasn't able to do that. So I was just like, all right, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it was never, it was never the plan. It was never the plan, but you know, everyone I spoke to about it, they were like, Oh, so you're going to become Instagram famous. So you're going to become an influencer. And I was like, maybe, hopefully, hopefully, you know, it'd be great to like make some money from social media while I'm doing this. What just doing what I love. But, uh, if it happens, it happens, you know, I've, I've found it's been one of the harder parts of the trip in general is documenting it because mm. I've been trying to document it in a way that doesn't detract from the experience. That's the biggest right? thing right there. It's the biggest thing right there. And it was like, I, I kind of had that 
I kind of decided that that was going to be the case watching Free Solo, right? Because there's that scene where they're sitting in Alex, Alex Honnold's van and he's like, I care more about doing it than it being filmed, you know? And that's kind of what I've been working with. Like, I post when I can, you know? Uh, nowhere near enough, that's for sure. I really should be posting more on my Instagram. Instagrams, right? I have two. I have my main one and then I have my photography one. Okay. Um, but, you know, it's tough. It's tough when, like, I'm riding for, you know, sun up to sundown, basically. Yeah. Um, TikTok, TikTok has actually been a lot easier to, like, post on, mm. funny enough. Like, that, that was, that's kind of the app I've been more consistent on. Um, it's, it's been paying off, you know. I think I shot up, like, 5,000 followers in the last week. Just from, oh. like, one, just from, like, one video, you know. So, yeah. But to answer your question, it's the kind of thing, like, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, yeah. The, yeah, for, please. For me, what I, I was seeing is like your your background is naturally like in photography. So you, yeah. I feel like a lot of van lifers become photographers because of the lifestyle and because they want to like make good content. But you kind of have edge of knowing about cameras and focal length and depth of feel and Nikon versus Canon. You know, you had that big learning curve before you got there. You know, yeah. you didn't have to go through all that. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And again, you know, I I I am by no means like a, a phenomenal photographer. Like I I would never I would never claim to be one. Like there's a lot of people out there, and especially a lot of like travel influencers out there who I'm like, wow, that's pretty. I, okay, all right, I see what these guys are doing. You know, and I le I learn a lot from you know I learn a lot from those people. But um, yeah, it, it it helps it helps for sure, especially when like you know it's a passion. Um, I found, I found a lot of travel in, with a lot of travel influencers, at least the ones that I met on the road and I've spoken to extensively, like it's just kind of a part of their job and it's a part of their life. Whereas like photography for me, it's something I just enjoy doing. I mm. just, I, I enjoy it. I get fulfillment out of it. Um, I, <laughs> I, I always say, I, I've been saying this for a long time. Like if I didn't have to be on Instagram, right. Cause I feel like as a photographer, you kind of have to be, if I didn't have to be on there. I, I, I would delete that app in a heartbeat. I would delete yeah. it in a heartbeat. I can relate you know? for sure. Yeah. But yeah. So we've got a lot of people here asking in the chat, Nikon or Canon. They, they want to know what you're shooting. I'm a Canon shooter through and through. Nice. That's what actually what I, what I learned on too. Yeah. I, uh, I, my first camera that I bought back in 2018 was a Sony a 5200. I had that for about four months and then I got a Canon 80 D. Um, I used that for a while and then I had a Canon EOS R and then I had the EOS R up until very recently. Like my EOS R was stolen when I was in Phoenix, like two and a half weeks ago. Wow. Yeah. So I'm actually, now I'm shooting on a Canon R6. I used it as an opportunity. I was like, all right, I'm going to buy a new camera. We're going to upgrade and really just kind of dig into it. It's actually, it's, the, it's, it's my tripod right now. I have like my phones mounted on a phone, like a phone holder that's on a hot shoe mount that is sitting on my, <laughs> my R6 right now. Well, that's so. what minimalism gives you. It gives you the resourcefulness and the ability to make everything adapt into whatever it is, that thing that you got rid of that you wish you had. Well, now that's it. the conglomeration of the rest of the items you do have become that item. 
Absolutely. But yeah, so to, to answer the question, I'm a cannon shooter, 100%. It's interesting to me that you're a guy who is living on a motorcycle with two of his three hobbies being very gear intensive, like rock intent, rock climbing, maybe the most gear intensive sport. Cause you need absolutely cams, you need ropes, rope bag, helmet, shoes, harness, yep. beaners. I mean, there's so many things. Everything. And then like camera equipment is huge. Yeah. It's clunky. It's heavy. So that's gotta mm -hmm. be like half of your gear that you're packing right there. It's really sad. The one, you know, the one big thing that I had to leave back in New York was my climbing gear. Yeah, it was the one thing that like I was packing up the day of. So there was like a week between when I moved out of my apartment in New York and when I hit the road. Um, mm. There was like a week limbo. So I was actually staying with a friend of mine up in New York. Uh, she's just like a friend from middle school that I've known for years. Um, I was staying in her parents' guest house. And I remember like standing in her driveway as I was loading up my bike. <laughs> and my my climbing pack was just like sitting off in the corner <laughs> just like and i'm glancing over at it as the pile of stuff on my bike just got bigger and bigger and bigger and i'm just like there's no way there's no way so it it is currently sitting in her garage back in westchester county um collecting dust basically she's actually she's coming out to los angeles next week and i think i'm, I'm hoping to have her bring it with her so i can give it to a buddy of mine who's out here so he can kind of haul it around. <laughs> nice. Well, she so. gets a friend MVP award for sure. Ah, uh, she's my friend Kendall's great. Like she's she's awesome. She's a she's a climber. She, I left it with her because she was like she wanted to learn how to start doing drag climbing, but she I I have only seen her bouldering as of recently. So if she's watching this, I'm gonna call her out and tell her that she needs to start drag climbing again. Once the yeah. weather clears up, once the weather clears up out there, I know how it is. I know how it is, but yeah. yeah. My friend Matt said you got to become a free soloer because you can't no. have your gear. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not so at all. For I'm not people for me. listening that, uh, that aren't as familiar with climbing, trad climbing stands for traditional climbing. And it means that there isn't uh, made bolts to hook onto on the wall. So you actually have to place your own gear to secure the person that's climbing first, which yes. requires, you know, a little bit more technicality and a little bit more know-how and also obviously more gear. You have to have a bunch Absolutely. of camp, especially in a place like Joshua Tree uh, where it's yeah. mostly climbing. What's great about, what's great about going out to those areas though, like when I, when I rolled into Joshua Tree two weeks ago, I just, I went on mountain projects, found like a looking for partners forum. I had a partner, I was set up with a partner within like a half hour, you know? Wow. Yeah. So it's, the good thing about coming to places like Joshua tree and like these climbing meccas, it's, it's very easy to find people. So I have the bare minimum. Like I have my shoes, I have my harness, I have my chalk bag, like my belay devices that I have with me. Um, it's just the rope and the, you know, the protection gear, all that kind of stuff that I have to rely on others. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you, you can be a good number two. You just can't take anybody out, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, you know, I'm the good thing. <laughs> The good thing about not having all the gear, like the physical gear, I still have the know-how on how to use all of it. So I'm comfortable taking people out who might not be as comfortable. So, so let's, uh, let's pivot. I have one question, and I yeah. feel like uh, this question could, could relate to any nomad. What's the um, social life like uh, on the road? And is there a dating strategy for you? Are you looking for, like, <laughs> oh. people that – are 
oh. living the same kind of lifestyle. What is what does that look like for you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, you asked you asked that after a after a weird two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> you asked that after a very weird two weeks. Um, I'll 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 go to the social life aspect of it first because it's it's something I'm still kind of like working working around. Um, you know, for the first three and a half months of this trip. I was solo pretty much every day, like, mm-hmm. you know, solo traveler. And I, you know, I met up with a few people here and there on the road, but it, it was nothing very serious. Um, you know, you'd hang out with them for a day or two and then like, you go your separate ways. But right before new year's, uh, I had one of my TikTok followers reach out to me on Instagram. Like he, my buddy, my friend drew, like he went from tick, he went from one app to another to reach out to me. And I felt, I felt very good about that. But he basically like, he saw I was going to be in the Phoenix area. He was like, Hey dude, we've got like 40 rigs coming to the desert just outside of Quartzsite to ring in the new year. You should come through. And I was like, I will be there tomorrow. That sounds awesome. So, um, rang in the new year with a bunch of new friends and like, for the last six weeks, I've kind of been running with that whole crew of people in one capacity or another. Um, so it's it's interesting, and maybe it's just a matter of, like, the whole snowbird crowd coming down to the southwest, just where it's warm. But, like, it's super easy out here to meet people, that's for sure. And and it's 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 always fun because, like, I'm the token motorcycle rider of the group. <laughs> or, or so I thought, actually. There was another adventure bike mike in that group another mike on a bike uh he was he was traveling in his pickup truck but he had his motorcycle like towed behind him so like there was two mike two mikes on bikes and we're both from new york it's very small world kind of thing um but yeah so that's like the that's that's what i would say is like the uh you know the social life aspect you just kind of meet people on the road uh it's one of the good things that social media is for is just connecting with other you know connecting with other people like it's always fun to kind of, now it's like fun to follow like your friends and seeing where they're at like i've got a bunch of friends down in baja right now like all the way down in cabo and you know i think quinn is up somewhere in utah doing her adventures that i'm jealous of because i can't really go up to utah right now <laughs> um yeah but Quinn and I are actually going uh, hiking on Saturday. Oh, that sounds awesome. Where are you guys going? Um, I don't know if I should say. Quinn doesn't necessarily love people knowing where she That's is. a fair point. It's a fair yes. point. It's um, a fair point. We will largely be in the Western United States. Makes sense. Like yeah. all of us. Like like all of us. It's getting a little dark. I'm actually, I have I have auxiliary lighting at this point. Ooh. So let's, let's get this. I knew the sun was going to go down during our conversation, so I planned ahead. Um... But yeah, uh, so I would say that's like the, uh, that is, the, let's see, Ooh, it's nice, it's kind of nice. Um, that's like the social life aspect. Uh, the dating aspect, I'm, I'm a bad person to ask. I'm, you know, <laughs> I, I kind of like got out of the dating scene for a couple of years, like when I was planning this trip, you know, part of that was like coming out of a bad relationship and not really wanting to, just realizing I had to kind of work on myself a little for a while and then then there was the two year limbo of like not wanting to meet anyone. Cause I knew I was going to be leaving, you know? Yeah. So I was, uh, <laughs> I'm kind of out of that game and I'm, I'm trying to kind of dip my toes back into it. So it's, I wish I had better advice, but, <laughs> um, yeah, man, it's what I've, what I've found at least with this, this crew of people and this, uh, demographic I'll say is we're all just like, 
we're all just a bunch of young people just trying to have fun on the road. That's it. And if you vibe with someone, you vibe with someone. If you don't, you don't. Um, yeah. Cool. That's about it. That's about it. What's your, uh, your favorite state you've been to so far? And I'm going to exclude like the East cause you're, a, you're East born, but in the West, what's your favorite state? I fully maintain at this point, just from, not just from this trip, like from my, cause I've driven across country three times at this point. I've been to something like 40 states so far. I'm really just kind of missing like the upper Midwest section, like, like uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin and all those. But I fully maintain at this point that Arizona might be the most beautiful state in the country. Really? It very well might be. It, it might be. I, I, you know, I haven't spent enough time in Utah to make an accurate judgment there because I feel like Utah is a good one. But the thing that Arizona has is it's not shut down for like six months out of the year with the winter. <laughs> like, you know, you know, I've been caught in like one stint of bad weather in Arizona and it was on like Christmas day when I went from petrified forest to Phoenix, like over the mountains. But like, yeah, man, there, there's something about Arizona, like pretty gorgeous out here. It's pretty gorgeous so, out here. You're telling me you're, you're a big warm weather guy. Yeah. I'm not, a, I'm not a big winter, not a big winter person. It, and it's just by virtue of like all of my activities, you know, the motorcycle right. riding, the climbing, the, just that being outdoors in general, like in New York and on the East coast in general, October to April, like you really can't do much, you know, like, yeah. especially these, especially these last few years. Like I remember the two years out of college, the winters were kind of mild, which was nice. Like I was riding the motorcycle into January. Um, but these last two years, man, we were having snowstorms and cold weather all the way into May. So mm. It's, it's tough. It's tough. Um, For me, it's, yeah. when you say that, you know, Utah has cold weather half the year, that's like, oh, I want to be there. Because snowboarding is like one of my biggest yeah. passions in life. So Arizona sounds great in the winter, but in the summer, yeah. not. Oh, it's brutal. It's brutal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, 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 again, it's kind of why I've like fallen in love with the nomad life is you can kind of just go wherever <laughs> you can ride the warm weather. Yeah. 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 I used to call it cherry picking. That's what I would do. That's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. Look around at the four surrounding States for the next, you know, month or so. And I'd be like, oh, I'm going to go live here. And now were you, now were you in a van? I had a truck camper. You had a truck camper. Nice. A 1993. I, yeah. I like, I, I gotta say, man, I dig the truck camper rigs. I really do. I really do. Really like, nice. Yeah. I, I did right out of college. Like I did a 9,000 mile trip around the U S in my Jeep. Okay. I, I was in a, I had a 97 Jeep Cherokee. I'm pretty sure it ran better when I got back to New York than when I left, <laughs> like those things are just bulletproof, but you know, it definitely uh, left a lot to be desired. And the more people I see out here with all the truck campers, I'm like, these things are awesome. <laughs> yeah, they are awesome. The, the price point is a lot better, at least for me. Um, the fact that a lot of the stuff is prefabbed and then you can kind of customize it Absolutely. was a big deal for me. It wasn't a full build out. Yeah. And the number one reason I did it is because of the access. You can get to so many places in a four by four serious yeah. off-roading truck that you can't get to in a van or a school bus or really anything else. Like it's hard to beat a Absolutely. four by four truck. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. Like 
And I've been like, you know, I've been thinking about what my life, what my life's going to look like after I do the whole motorcycle aspect of this trip, you know, cause, and I've, I've had this conversation with, it's, it's an interesting conversation with van lifers in particular, um, because I feel it's kind of a taboo question to ask of like, how long are you going to do this? Cause mm. I, cause I feel like the thing that a lot of us ignore is like, there is kind of a temporary nature to what we're doing, which is a good thing. Um, but I don't know, man. The more I see, the more I see, like the the more I see the schoolies out here. Like I was just at Schoolie Palooza a couple weeks, like two weeks ago. Uh, and the more rigs I see out on the road, I'm like, oh, maybe there is like a long term way to do this that isn't like super uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good point. I don't think a lot of nomads want to talk about that. But yeah ultimately it gets i think when it gets hard is when people start talking about families then it yeah. starts becoming really difficult because if you if you had a kid um well raising a kid you, on the road would be really really hard i i i thought so i thought so too but then like at least in these last two or three weeks i've run into a ton of people who are like raising their kids on the road awesome. just just over in joshua tree like 50 yards away from where we were camped there was a husband and wife and their three kids. They're just living out of their like 78 Airstream. That's you know? epic. All three of the kids were born in the Airstream. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. These kids were insane, man. They were like, they were all born in the Airstream, never been to public schools, probably have more climbing knowledge than I'll ever have in my life. Like they're, they're little badasses. So I, I don't know, man, maybe like, maybe the future is like just going full nomad again, like with family and all, who knows? Yeah, I mean, if that's the case, you gotta do even more to protect the public lands. I don't think, Absolutely. I don't think a lot of people consider it a high priority. But we live yeah. in a very luxurious continent of a, lots of public land that other countries Absolutely. don't have. Yes, our public land has a lot of rules and regulations, mm -hmm. but the sheer mass of how much public land we have is incredible. It's it's insane and. It's unfortunate that there's not more out on the East Coast, you know, mm. that was that was that was an adjustment that was. It's an adjustment that's actually allowed me to slow down a little bit. Right. I remember going down the East Coast. So, like. I think I started heading west. So essentially, my route was like I left from I left from Westchester just outside of the city. I. um went up to the Adirondacks, I cut across to Maine, and then I just kind of started riding down the coast until I got to Asheville, North Carolina, and then I cut west. And that probably would have been, I don't know, two weeks before Thanksgiving. So, yeah. like, I, I did the whole East Coast in about six weeks just by virtue of there not being much public land to, like, camp on for long terms. Um, whereas out here, I've stayed in the same, like, 200-mile radius for the last six weeks just because it's easy. It's easy yeah. to do. Why not? Yeah, I uh, I also have experienced something similar. I did Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Texas to Mexico, and I stayed in Mexico yeah. for lived in the desert for like a month. Um, yeah. And we would, you know, we were teaching skills courses down there. So when we were teaching the courses, we were doing it on private land that we knew the owner. We had permission to be there, so I got to stay there for a couple of weeks. But yeah. when you're in Texas and you're not on somebody's private land there's nowhere to stay. It's 95% of the state is privately yeah. owned and you can't just pull up and park like you're in Joshua tree. Texas was tough. Texas was tough. I, I was in, I was in Dallas for two weeks 
I was there the week before Thanksgiving, the week after, because my oldest, my oldest brother and my sister-in-law and mother, they're all up in Dallas. But then like I left Dallas and like I headed south to Austin and then I cut straight west from there. Like I went down to Big Bend, which was awesome. Big Bend. Is yeah, epic. dude, I, I tell everybody it's probably it's on this trip in particular. It's probably the area that surprised me the most. That's where I was down teaching a lot of yeah. this last year was uh, yeah. Chihuahua Desert. Yep. It's gorgeous out. It's it's gorgeous. And what I love about it is like you're never going to end up there. You have to like intentionally go there. Um, but yeah, since I since I went down there, man, anytime people recommend, ask for recommendations, I'm like, go to Big Bend. Like, go check it out. Make the trip. Um, yeah, I think West Texas blows a lot of people's minds because it looks nothing like what you had yeah. in mind for Texas. It's like huge mountains and canyons yeah. and all these weird uh, yeah. animals that don't live anywhere else in the United yeah. States because they've been brought over privately and yep. released and now they're invasive. So there's like, yeah. you know, awdads and javelina. There's animals yeah. all over the place. Yeah. Texas Hill Country was gorgeous. I love driving through Texas Hill Country. It's de it's a desolate barren wasteland with no like facilities anywhere, but it was gorgeous. I yeah, I almost ran out of gas twice. I didn't have cell service for I think three days. <laughs> like going what? through Hill Country. What was the what's the biggest difference riding and doing that kind of stuff in a motorcycle rather than a car, like perspective wise? Absolutely. So I, I always default to Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance. Um, right. It's uh, if if anyone watching this is like even remotely interested in like philosophy or anything like that, like it's actually the first third of the book is like a travel book. But then the, the latter, like two th three quarters to two thirds of it is like this philosophical exploration that Neil Persig wrote. Have you ever read you ever read this book? I feel like you would have. I, I have not. But it, it reminds me of On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Yeah. So it's similar, similar generations. Um, there's a there's a stanza in the first chapter where Neil Persig describes riding on a motorcycle versus riding in a car. And I, and I think it's it's just the perfect way to describe this. When you're driving in a car, right? When you're traveling on a road trip in a vehicle, the world is going by on a television screen, which is your windshields, right? You are just seeing things as you go by. Whereas when you're on a motorcycle, when I throw that, you know, when I throw my visor up, you're in the scene. You're in the world. You're, you're, you're not watching it go by. You're in it. So that's kind of the big thing. And it's... It's why I wanted to do it on a motorcycle. I wanted yeah. to be I wanted to be connected to the world around me in a way that you just can't in a car. You know, when you're in a car, you could it's I mean, we've all done it. Like, you know, you'll be driving and then the next thing you know, you'll like come back to like you'll zone out and then come back to five minutes later and be like, What just happened? You can't do that on a bike. You know, right. you can't you have to be present and aware and just constantly kind of scanning. Yeah, that's how I feel about um, my trips when I've done it on foot. I do a lot of like adventure running or hiking and you have to be you're there the whole time yeah. rather than in a car. You're kind of just seeing the world go by you. You're seeing the world go by you. You're texting, you know, you're texting, you're drinking your coffee, you're thinking about anything other than driving. <laughs> yeah, right? there's even a difference. Uh, at the speed in which you travel. So like yeah. if you're in a, you know, a normal car and you're 
attacking a highway at 75, 85 miles per hour across the country. First, my truck literally, from in most of the West where there's hills, it could only go like 50 miles per hour. And I saw so much more at 50 miles per hour than I was used to seeing at 80 miles per hour. It was like miraculous. Yeah, I just had, like I mentioned before, I've got a group of like, a group of my friends, uh, they're all down in Baja. Like they're all down in Cabo. And they just, like, they blew through that whole trip in like two days. I'm like, that's a thousand miles in two days. I'm, I'm, I think the longest day of travel I've had on this trip so far was like 350 or 400 miles. That's that's a, that's about my, that's about my daily limit so far. Um, Just because I do it mostly on the back roads. But yeah, I like, it blows my mind how much slower you go. Try and turn off the, or turn on the avoid highways button. Always, every time. Yeah, every time. that's the, I, that's the best. I've avoid I avoid highways like the plague, you know. And part of it, is, you know, part of it is most of it is because like just you see more, you see more when you get off the highways, right? But part of it is like a safety a safety thing, you know. Mm-hmm. I hate I I feel inherently unsafe riding on the highways. You know, I'll do it. I'll do it. I've done it. You know, um especially when I'm really trying to put miles, you know, get miles under the tires and really kind of like get to a location, but I avoid it if at all possible. Um, just have, you last ever, uh, have you ever been to devil's backbone in Southern Utah? I haven't. That sounds awesome. It, it's very famous for a motorcyclist. I know, but I've just driven it and ran it and it's yeah. like, super thin and on both sides it's just a complete like drop off into two canyons and it just oh, like that's sick crooks through the desert in southern utah it's really sick just that, i wanted to remind yeah. you of that is it's got to be out near like zion or monument valley like out in that area right so it's uh escalante so it'd be like okay. between bryce and capitol reef <laughs> got it got it got it got it okay yeah just east of, east of bryce i'm hoping i'm hoping to get up to I'm hoping to get up to Utah soon because I like right now. So I'm, I'm heading out towards, I'm either going to death Valley or I'm going to Monterey mm-hmm. one or the other. Like my little brother, he's stationed up in Monterey right now. He's in the, he's at one of the army bases out there. So I want, I haven't seen him since he shipped off in May last year. So I'm trying to, trying to go see him soon. But uh, I'm hoping like the way timing works hoping the weather starts to shift in utah soon because i would really like to go to like zion and southern utah and that yeah, whole area spring there the spring there is amazing and monterey california also especially like this time of the year is really nice because it's so temperate yeah. on the west coast it doesn't really get cold there i'm so excited to go it just seems like camping out there is a nightmare and a half like i was looking so this, this is probably a good thing to address is like how to find campsites right um, there's, there's been, a, you know, there's been some sketchy campsites at this point, more just in the sense of like, probably shouldn't have camped there. Like, like, you know, you, you tuck yourself into a corner in a town park and you, you throw your tent down for a couple hours or, you know, I, I remember 10 days into the trip. I, uh, I, I just slept on the side of like route one up in Maine. Like that's how, <laughs> that's how I rang my birthday in. Cause I could not for the life of me, it turns out in, in September in Maine, you can't find campsites anywhere, anywhere at all. So like I've had a couple cowboy camp nights like that, but it seems like out in Monterey, there's just nothing. Like I was looking on freecampsites.net. I was looking on free roam. I was looking on the dirt. I looked everywhere. So I'm mm-hmm. like, like, I want to go see him, but I'm like, 
trying to figure out how logistically it's going to work. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the places there you have to pay for. They're like established campsites, but like the whole Big Which, Sur area and Highway yeah. 1, there's definitely places to, there's places to camp. Yeah, but they, you got to pay for them and you got to pay California prices a lot of the time, which that I don't even mind too bad. Frankly, the California prices for those campsites is nothing compared to out east. Like, really? I remember I remember going up coastal Maine up to Acadia. There were like tent sites for like 60 or 70 dollars a night. Yeah, no, thanks. I think I've paid once. Yeah, I, I just try to I have, avoid I, it. I avoided. I'm right there with you. I avoided as much as possible. Um Sometimes it's just necessary, especially yeah. in places like, especially in places like, like West Texas. <laughs> that's yeah. kind of where, that's kind of where I, uh, I remember I camped. Where did I camp in Texas? I hid, uh, I hid in a state park for two nights that said no camping, but I di- I literally didn't have anywhere to go. I could have hit camped, but I just went to the top of the state park and it was actually yeah. during the ice storm to, Oh, wow. two years ago no so way like, all right there's no way cops are coming up here no and then ice storm to check this park and i just tucked yeah. it and it was fine yeah i uh, and i i don't know if van i don't know if this is like popular among van lifers but like you know at least because there's also there there's a pretty sizable community of like long distance motorcycle riders who you know there's 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 a there's a good amount of us and the adage we usually go by is arrive late and leave as early as possible yeah like no one's gonna bother you if they don't know you're there so just like pull in late pack up before like the sun like gets too high just get going that's a good point um, yeah what about the uh the shower situation are you doing the planet fitness thing planet fitness yeah planet fitness and showering as much as i can but you know if you go a week or 10 days, it is what it is. It is what it is. Little, uh, I remember trying to think I've taken my fair share of like baby wipe showers at this point. That's for sure. Um, (laughs) I remember up in Acadia, I was, so I, I was staying at a jujitsu school up in Acadia for like four days. Um, I just like, I rolled into town. I, I stopped at the school that was owned by like, it was owned by my buddy Chris, who's a purple belt out there. He was a purple belt at the time, and I was a brown belt, so he was like, hey, dude, like, if you want to teach some classes, like, you can sleep on the mats if you want to. I was like, sick, do you guys have showers? And he goes, come with me. He brings me out front, and he just hands me the host. <laughs> so I'm taking, like, at the end, like, late September, just taking, like, a cold shower out on the side of this building, just like, this is what my life has become. <laughs> but, That's awesome. Yeah. How, how does yeah. the jiu-jitsu thing work being on the road you just drop yeah. in different gyms all over that's it yeah just drop in at schools all over um generally most places are pretty like pretty kind of visitors you know i've had you know i've been training eight and a half years right i've and in eight and a half years i've trained all over the u.s i've trained you know i've trained out of the country like i've, I've trained a lot and pretty much everywhere has been pretty receptive to visitors mm-hmm. um i was okay. just you know, just over in Joshua tree, like, and especially now that like, you know, I'm a Brown belt, I've been training long enough. Like I'm almost a black belt. People are definitely a little more receptive. Um, I've been asked to teach classes more than once, like just over in Joshua tree, there's a jiu-jitsu school out there that like I dropped into. And again, the instructor was a purple belt. He was like, I'd love to, if you're up to teach class, teach class. And I was like, absolutely. That's awesome. hundred percent. Um, so how do you, or I, never like really trained jujitsu i learned a lot of jujitsu to defend myself from older brothers but i've never had any sort of absolutely uh, 
any sort of belt system. So I'm curious, yeah. who decides that Mike Barr is a black belt? What are like, do you have to check boxes yeah. or is it just like your sensei thinks you're ready? Yeah. So um, I've been, I've been lucky these last, these last four years, I've been training under a guy named JT Torres. Um, he's out in New York. He's, you know, by and large, one of the best American competitors of all time. You know, he's, uh, there's this, uh, there's this tournament that happens every two years. It's called ADCC. It's like the Abu Dhabi combat championships or something, or something like that. It's just like, it started back in the nineties. Uh, turns out like grappling and jujitsu is really big over in like Abu Dhabi. And it's just like all of these like rich oil barons, uh, just were, came up with this organization and it's really like the Olympics of our sport. It happens every two years. And it's like, it's either invite only, or you have to win one of the trials. And my instructor, he's won the 77 kilo class the last two times and he's going for a third this year. But I started training with him when I was a blue belt. Um, and you know, it's not like, it's not like Taekwondo or karate or a lot of those more traditional martial arts that are just like, you know, you're ticking boxes every time you come into class and like, you know, uh, it's not attendance based, it's, it's skill based, right? So at the end of the day, it's up to your instructor. So eventually I, you know, I, I hope one day to be a black belt under JC Torres, right? Um, yeah, yeah, it's nothing so, crazy. So that's it's, the, it's, the, sorry, go ahead. No, please, you're fine. I was just saying the instructor then matters a lot more because it's like that person ultimately makes the decision. So if you don't get your black belt from someone that has like some credit behind their name, then somebody could say, you know, oh, you're a black belt, but you got it from this guy that kind of just hands out black belts to everyone. And that, you know, that's that's kind of a thing in most martial arts in general. But in, in jujitsu, you know, we we talk about it a lot. Like there's black belts and then there's black belts like yeah. like a like a world-class black belt is going to make a black belt like a hobbyist black belt look like they've never trained a day in their life right okay. so you know um i'm lucky i'm lucky i've been around the sport for a long time you know my oldest brother he's a black belt down in texas my other older brother you know the younger of the two he's he's a purple belt out in virginia but he's been training longer than either of the two of us like he's just not the most consistent person in the world so he's got a lot of knowledge. So I'm, I'm lucky to have them in my life to kind of guide me on this whole journey. But I, I'm also lucky to have aligned myself with an instructor who, whose values I share. Right. And that it's funny. That's actually like, that's something that I've, I've reflected a lot on, on this trip. And it actually came from a guy that I stayed with when I was in New Mexico. Um, there's a, there's a website called Bunka Biker. And it's couch surfer for motorcycle riders. And I, I stayed with this guy, Chuck, out in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. Stayed with him for like three days. And just this like old school, like 75-year-old salt of the earth guy, like mountain man. Lived up in the Yukon back in like the 80s. Like hitchhiked 50,000 miles around the country. And we were having this conversation and he, and he spoke, he said this. And he was talking about it in terms of like therapists like psychiatrists, but I, I feel like it really translates to anyone in your life. Hmm. And, and he said, if you don't align yourself with someone whose values align with your own, it is a doomed relationship no matter what. So 
I think that's good. I think it's, it's a good lesson to take to any relationship, but especially, you know, a teacher student relationship, like I've, you know, like I've had with my instructors over the last eight and a half years. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's awesome. It's good wisdom. It's and, a good question to ask yourself. Yeah. And the good thing about jiu-jitsu too is like, once you get a purple belt, if you keep doing it, if you keep doing it, you keep showing up, you'll get a black belt someday. It's just by virtue of time on the mats, <laughs> energy you've put in. Sure. Oh man, well we're we're running up on an hour here, Mike. This has been yeah, man. This has been awesome. Tons of fun. It, I feel like the time really flew by. The only reason I noticed is because it's like pitch black behind you. It's getting dark. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I got I got a beautiful like blue hour going on over the mountains over here. Yeah, I'm probably. I mean, I'm probably still gonna go like sit in a, sit in a Starbucks for an hour before going to find a place to sleep for the night. So, right nah, man, this has been this has been great. Hope we can do it again sometime. You know, this this was awesome. Had a really good conversation. Yeah, me too. And I'm really stoked to like follow along with your journey and see how this uh, how this whole thing develops. It'll be really cool to watch it. I appreciate it. dude. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. You are definitely a wild dude. Stay safe on the road out there. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can do this again soon. I appreciate it, Ryan. Thank you very much, man. All right, guys. Thanks for joining. See you guys later. Stay well. Thanks. Thanks for watching, guys. Take care.